Welcome to Mind Rewind, a voyage through mental health journeys by those with the courage and desire to share their experiences with you. Through the insight and lived experience of others, you may find the tools and strategies that could benefit you and the strength to reach out for support. Listen and you'll hear messages of hope and that there is no obstacle that cannot be overcome when there is a willingness and bravery to tackle your challenges. Just a warning that some of the content of this story may be confronting for some listeners. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, speak with someone today. Please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi there, my name is Jack Payne and you're listening to Mind Rewind and our guest today to tell her story is Shah. Hi Shah, nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you too. The first thing I always like to know is where people are at now before I go lurching into your sort of story and and what has gone before. So can you share a little bit about yourself and where you're at now? A bit about me is I'm a busy mum of one. I uh, own a business, a small business. I'm a sole trader. I have a wonderful husband who is just the best person in the world. And I'm involved in my community, in my school. And um, yeah, like life is very, very vanilla. <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm at. Is it? <laughs> yeah, suburban vanilla, slightly boring, but I'm not lighting it on fire. So life is good. <laughs> Uh, do you know what? Vanilla is completely underrated yeah. in my humble opinion. Definitely, you know what? Definitely. We laugh at the picket fence and the two kids and the dog, but actually I think it's aspirational for a lot of people. Absolutely, yeah. So you living vanilla now. Yes. What flavours were you before? I'm really oh, keen to hear. Chunky Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> <laughs> never, not, never sure what you're um, going to bite into, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Tell yep. us about the Ben and Jerry's story. Where do you want to begin? Oh, I guess, um, you know, I, I do do this quite frequently. I work with uh, in recovery a lot of the time. So I do okay. do, I have like a, I do have a bit of a spiel around my story. So just stop me if I'm kind of going off track. I have a long history of drug addiction and eating disorders and um, and just destructive behavior. Uh, I have been diagnosed with probably every mental illness and personality disorder under the sun. And I um, have been in recovery now for um, 10 years. And so I'm in my early 30s now and I'm in a, a state of maintenance around that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big story. All right. Yeah. So if we, if we go, if we take several steps back and get into your teenage years, what were your biggest challenges? Because what, what we really want to pull out of this is, you know, you might be living vanilla now, but my gosh, You've had all these other things, these challenges, these mental health labels to some extent all thrown at you, and yet here you are, early 30s vanilla. So the story of hope that sits within that is incredibly powerful. So I'm really keen to hear when you began to realise that things were problematic for you or when the behaviours started that were causing you issues. Yeah, well, I guess I guess realizing uh, suggests uh, introspectiveness that um, I I don't think that I had the ability to kind of access until I was a lot older. I identify that I was behaving in a way that was addictive from a very young age, and I'm talking probably close to like five. Oh wow! What were you addicted to at five or six? Um, it, it kind of depends on your viewpoint, but um, my mother uh, some interesting views around food, which for that time period was um very 
cool. Like, so my behavior was pretty out of control from about two onwards. And, you know, I carried that kind of narrative through a lot of my life. But I know now as a parent, like I was just a kid. <laughs> I was just a kid yeah. who was struggling. What did the out of control look like? Oh, look, tantruming. I mean, you you don't remember that. You've obviously no. been told. But look, what have you been told? Yeah, like tantruming. Um, you know, I, I guess they would call it like oppositional defiance disorder now. You know, I've diagnosed as ADHD when I was seven and I was put on Ritalin. So I had, um, and you know, like I have a child on Ritalin now. So that's definitely not something that I am against. I just know that for me, there was, there was a big element of being, um, you know, attachment theory and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a whole nother conversation, (laughs) but, um, my mum tried to control my behavior through food. So there was a lot of, um, I couldn't eat preservatives. I couldn't eat sugar. I couldn't eat this food. I couldn't eat that food. And so from a really, really young age, I internalized a, um, a message that I could control the way that I felt with things outside of myself. Okay. And I know that that wasn't in her intention, but that's how it kind of played out. And so when I was about nine, she got diagnosed with cancer and subsequently died when I was 13. And I... Oh, sweetie, that's young. It was was really young. Like I I didn't feel young at the time, you know, because when you're 13, you think I thought that I... um, you know, kind of didn't really have any idea of what was going on. Um, and then my, my brother who had suffered a long sufferer of drug addiction and psychosis committed suicide a year later. And so I went through these really traumatic events that um, kind of gave me a bit of a get out of jail free card <laughs> in a sense. Okay, because people were understanding that you'd had this Absolutely. incredible trauma, yeah. repetitive trauma to some extent, and so we would expect her to act out or be a bit wild or go off the rails yes. or have we describe it. Yes, exactly. So I think my life went the way that it was meant to go and I think that um, you know everybody was doing the best they can. I truly believe that in my soul now, now but I lacked boundaries and I really found it hard to control my behavior and so that I started acting out in lots of different ways particularly like self-harm um and uh I you know I did things like I would get into cars with older men I know them as men now um and go out for hours on end and my parents would have no idea where I was and this is before I picked up drugs you know what what a risk-taking behavior yeah because my brother had died of drug addiction I really had um a core belief that drugs were not for me but (laughs) I started dating a boy (laughs) as the story goes you know oh it's always the boy (laughs) yeah um Sorry, but um, started dating a boy and one night, you know, he offered me a cone and from that first drug, I was very much like, who are my friends going to be? Drugs, how am I going to get them later and how am I going to get the money to get them? And so I would say it was a slow but fast decline, you know, like I um, was drinking alcohol and it wasn't really affecting me too much. It was more that secondary behavior stuff but then from smoking pot it was very much like this is where I want to be all the time why was that can I ask you because that's a really interesting point to make this is this is where I want to be this works for me because you know what when people start it can be experimental or friends or whatever peer pressure but but to continue usage is because we get something out of it so and and that's exactly what you're describing what did you get out of it I think I think also irrespective of my trauma, I think I was just somebody who was very noisy in my head. Like I spent a lot of time 
you know, like I went to a selective high school um, and I'm very analytical. And so I think I have, have just spent a lot of time inside of my head. And if I kind of jump back a little bit, you know, I spent a lot of time in fantasy as a child. I was very much that child that spent a little bit of time you know, like that year four period where people start not playing, like I held on to that for as long as I could. And so I think that what the pot did for me was I was able to kind of switch off for a bit. Like my head just wasn't as loud and there was a huge benefit in that. Um, You know, I always stand by the fact that like in, in a sense drugs saved my life at that time period because if I had kept on the way that I was going, I don't think I would have been able to live inside inside my head any longer um so being able to switch off in that way was wouldn't say beneficial because the rest of the story isn't as pretty (laughs) sure sure (laughs) but um, but but it gave you something that was really important for you at that time can i ask because you know you mentioned a a, a few things in there which was the self-harm obviously that's it's something that you know i hate to normalize it but i'll normalize it it happens a lot and and predominantly females but boys are doing it too and again they get something people get something out of doing it when you were self-harming was that to feel something or was it because i'm sitting with such big internal feelings that I, I don't know another way to cope with it because you were analytical and you and not necessarily having that emotional language or literacy. Yeah, I think I think there was a couple of things in here, and you know, as time's gone on and I've become much more honest with myself, like I I, I don't feel ashamed to say this stuff. I have a fundamental belief that addiction is the opposite of connect. Um, sorry, op- connection is the opposite of addiction, and um, and in all of my behaviours, I was seeking connection. The ways that I was doing that was. You know, when I was meant to go to an after-school sport or I needed to do something that I didn't have the language to be able to say, like, I'm overstimulated and I'm exhausted and I don't, and I'm grieving and I'm going through all these things, you know, like, so what I would do is I would self-harm to get out of stuff. Um, and, you know, at that time, there was a lot of that narrative around, you know, this is attention-seeking behaviour and like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I am actually trying to communicate something with this that I'm not it's okay. Like, yeah. So could you pay attention, please? Um, I self-harmed for a variety of reasons. Some of them were to externalize my pain. And I think that that's been a lot of my recovery is, is learning that I wasn't the problem. It was like I had to externalize being wrong and bad and, and off, you know, and self-harm was a way of me offloading that and externalizing it and making it the world's problem because it was the world's problem um and then there was an also an element of this where which is where what i talk about with the people that i work with is um you know i really want to get down to like the petty resentments like the petty stuff that we used to the shameful stuff because as addicts i know that i can create this big narrative about justification and all that stuff sometimes it was just to get out of school sport (laughs) <laughs> like sometimes it was just to get sent to a That's to quiet room for a bit at school, you know. Um, sometimes it was. It worked yeah, for Yeah, sometimes it was to manipulate yeah. my friends um, because, you know, I was in pain and they didn't have the tools to be able to deal with that and I needed to try and make them because that a, a huge part of my story is that codependency stuff as well. Okay. So it's still about connection, mm. isn't it? I'm still connection. longing for connection, even if I'm hurting myself and people recognise yeah. that. So just those maladaptive they come, they come to me. Yeah, and totally. You know, I can look back at that now as a 30-year-old, 30-something-year-old, and um, 
and I can see it all so clearly. But when it was there, you know, that that lack of impulse control, like just I had a thought and I just did it. Like there was no pause. There was no moment of like, and I don't know if it was even possible for me because everybody kept saying to me, you've got to change, you've got to be different, you've got to do all this stuff. And it's like, okay, but how? (laughs) Tell me how. Because if you lived inside my head, you'd want a lobotomy too. You know, because like, that, yeah, that's where I was at. Like you get it rationally, you got it, but able to, but to a- actually change behaviour was too was incredibly well, difficult. That's it. Like I think that there is this narrative around addicts being morally bad and not knowing right, right from wrong. Like I would argue the actual absolute opposite. I would say that, like addicts that I know are the best people I know. Like they. Like I've just come back from a three-day retreat that we put on with 150 women where, um, you know, we spent the whole weekend sharing and looking after each other and, like, powerful stuff. Um, I don't think that addicts are morally bad. I don't think that children that are suffering are morally bad. I don't think that they don't know right from wrong. I think that it's, it's just really hard to control your impulses when you have no skills. Absolutely agree with you. Obviously, you started off with with a cone and the mm. weed, you know, became your little yeah. friend for yeah. a little while. Did that grow? Because often, you know, I, when when young people tell me that they they use weed, I, I smile because they'll give me all the reasons in the world why it's completely harmless and it has no effect on them. And I'm busy eye rolling in the back of my head, going, "But it's a gateway sometimes, and there are risks attached to it." Did it? move on for you yeah definitely I think um like I had as I said I think I've said a few times like short but fast you know um sorry like long but fast I think you know it was a long time coming but when it started it started and um you know I went from smoking a couple of cones with my boyfriend to like you know 40 cones a day you know in the shower before school and that was a very very short period of time I went from that how old were I was, you when that was happening? It must have been, it was early year nine. So I would have been maybe 14. It was very, very quick. And I went from, you know, risk-taking behaviours, you know, sex at a young age, drinking, you know, self-harming while drinking, you know, doing all the things. Like I was always just that girl at school that when I went to school on Monday, the kids would be like, did you hear what Shah did on the weekend? There's yeah. always a Shah yeah, story. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I went from that to, you know, it's like every parent's worst nightmare, right? Um, stealing money. I dropped down of all my after school activities. Uh, I wasn't really doing homework anyway, but I did much less. Um, and not at four, not on 40, 40 cones, you weren't doing much at all. No, 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 I was not. And, you know, I had a posse of people who were doing the same thing. It was very normalised. Because you seek those people out, and I, I guess I ask that question because I, I, he, I hear it a lot with people who have become, you know, you know, ad- addicted. Let's not wrap it up in any other term. And they will talk about the fact that they they almost seek out and create a life that has all these enablers sitting within it, you know, telling them it's okay, it's normal and we do it together. And you know what, I, I don't want to have the friends that sit outside of that because I'm terrified of the judgment or that they might have an expectation that I change my behaviours. So I stick with people that sit in that space with me. Was that your experience? Well, yeah, I also think like going back to that opposite of addiction is connection like I was looking for connection and that's all I wanted was like finding a group of people that we had a common 
ground. And, you know, I could go into all the ways that school failed me, um, but finding my group at school that we stuck together, we were doing the same things, like we had each other's back, you know, that was really hard for me to let go of. Um, so, like, just to fast forward a little bit, you know, so that was early year nine. Um, so I started raving maybe of June that year. And then I found myself in cars with older men, you know, doing lines of speed. And I had no idea how to do it. You know, like I'm trying to pretend that I'm so cool and I know what I'm doing and you know, all that kind of stuff. And and then, yeah, like I, oh gosh, I haven't even thought about this in such a long time. You know, then I, I, I kept escalating very, very quickly. And, and by my 16th birthday, I was smoking ice daily. So that was, I'd been kicked down of school. I'd lost my job. I had a restraining order against me by my parents, which was probably the best thing that they've ever done for me. Terrifying for them. Why do you say that? It's an interesting thing to say. Yeah. Why do you say it was the best thing? I think, as I said, like, and this is a bit of like, a, you know, as a parent now, I realise that my role is to be the net around the trampoline. It's up to me to, to create safety for my child so that they can jump as high as they want and can. I think I've pushed so many walls out in my parents' ability to function with me that when they drew a hard line in the sands, my life fell apart very, very quickly. And knowing that I had done that and the things that I had done to require a restraining order at 16 years old um, was a big wake-up call. In saying that, I made choices in that period of time that, again, connected me with people who were enabling. So I had a lot of um, people in my parents' life reach out and offer me a home and I chose to live in a squat. And then I was able to do the whole, like, I'm homeless, you know, that kind of, but it was just, it was, it was only, but I can't underestimate how addicted I was at this point. Were you aware or were you trying to tell yourself otherwise or were you not having conversations with yourself at all? You were just lurching from day to day. <laughs> Without wanting to like make a joke out of it, I was having lots of conversations with myself. I was on crystal meth. <laughs> um, Some of them um, probably very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Like on a basic level, like even just if you take away all the mess of like what was going on on the outside and all that stuff, like I was chronically sleep deprived and and I hadn't eaten in weeks and wasn't drinking in water. So like on a biological level, like. Physically you were so yeah, compromised as well. So compromised and just coming out of this place of like, again, thought, action, thought, action, thought, action and thinking like I just had just on a biological level, I had no space because I was so tired and psychotic and, um, you know, ice does not agree with me. I, I went into psychosis within about an hour of having my first pipe. So not I was aware that I was creating chaos, but the way that I like to think of it, and, I mean, I don't like to think of it, is, you know, when you're driving past those car yards and there's that, flailing thing mm -hmm. <laughs> that was yeah, me. the man with the flappy arms yeah that was me I just flailed like I was just a fish out of water I had no idea which way was up and I was just doing the best that I could to stay alive and I didn't were you ever scared no no 
fear never touched you. No, I I wasn't scared. I don't know. That's and that's it. Like it's really hard to separate what I thought then and what I think now because I've obviously done so much extrapolating. Like you could tell by talking to me for five seconds. I can indeed. <laughs> um, my favorite topic is me. Um, <laughs> sure, but, I love that. I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. Um, but I think I, I think I was just in pure primal survival mode, um, and I don't. I look back now. And I thought I was so big. I look back now and I think about my my child being 16 and I shudder. You know, um, I had no fear. I was in cars with people who were out of their brains on drugs. We were driving on the sidewalk. You know, um, I lived in a no front or back door, you know, and I lived with people triple my age. And you had no concept of the vulnerability. None. And I had no concept of the, um, you know, because the big moments, I think that we think a lot about the big moments, you know, my mother dying, my brother dying, um, you know, Mm. the the violence. I have had to spend a lot of time unpacking the small moments, you know, like the the time that a man who was 38 took me out on a date. You know, um, yeah. having to to unpack those those little moments that I did not realise were so incredibly dangerous. Um, but yeah, like it, it definitely was. I look back on that, and I think my parents are like the strongest people I've ever met because I cannot imagine how terrifying it would have been to have pulled out that trap door and let me hit a rock bottom, like let me go. I think that's such a powerful statement and, you know, for anybody who will listen to this or is listening to this to understand that parents, you're exactly right, they are your safety net. They're they're the thing that you push on in adolescence because you're meant to be pushing, that's part of your job. But you know what? There should be that sense of there's something there and what your parents did was take that away Mm. and said, keep going, keep going. There's nothing there anymore to allow you to get to that point Uh, because I presume at that point they, you know, there was a sense of hopelessness and helplessness for them. Absolutely, yeah. Is they had to let you work it out and hopefully you'd work it out really smart with no boundaries at all. Yeah, well, and thankfully, like, I did have a very quick turnaround, you know, like I I had lost a job that I'd had. Like I'd been kicked out of school, like I assaulted a teacher at school. I'd been kicked out of school. I'd gotten a job. I'd lost the job. Um, you know, my parents had kicked me out. I had this AVO pending and I was living in this squat and I was, you know, I, I, I'm not silly. Like, that, and I think that's the thing is like, like, that's the thing is like addicts aren't stupid. Like I, like I wasn't fearful, but I knew this wasn't good. And I actually think that it was a relationship that I had with a boy. Um, and I'm, I say boy because I, he was not a man thankfully, where I was extremely obsessed with him and he also kind of gave up on me. And I almost, like, I don't, I didn't love the fact that I was so obsessed with this person, which, like, if we went into it, I wasn't really. I was just addicted. But when he left me, I called my stepmother and I said, you know, I need help please help me. And it was really interesting. I, I She got me in a, um, a local rehab and I went in for this interview and, and they were asking me all these questions. At this point, I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia. I don't think borderline personality was a thing yet. Bipolar, manic depressive, OCD, like all the things. 
And I went into this rehab and they asked me all these questions and I was high as a kite. So, I mean, given that. And so they said to me, you know, do you have any mental illnesses? And I said, yes, here is the list. Because <laughs> I'd hung on to that list, right? Like that was important to me. Why was it important to you? That's a really interesting thing to say. It justified my behavior. Ah, uh, okay. It, that was your get out yeah, of get out of jail exactly, sheet. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, complex PT and you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I I had this list and I gave it to them. And the next question was, I remember this really vividly. The next question was, do you use any illegal drugs? And I paused <laughs> and sitting there with your dilated pupils. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and the interviewer said, um, you know, this is private. Like this will not be going to your parents. And I said okay, so today or in the past week, like which one? <laughs> and, she, and she was like, today will do. And I was like, okay. So I kind of listed, you know, a bit of ketamine, a bit of ice, a couple of like a cone and I drunk some alcohol that morning and, you know, I gave, kind of gave her the list of things. And then the next question was, do you think your drug use affects your mental illness? And I was like, no. <laughs> and that kind of wrapped up the interview and when we went out to the car, my mum, my stepmom, sorry, I use it interchangeably so I have to be careful, my stepmother said to me, they've rejected you and I was like, right, why? And I was angry, you know, like I was so angry. What you mean they've given up on me too? Uh, like expletive, expletive, expletive. And, and she said to me, they don't believe that they can help you because you have no understanding of what you're doing to yourself. And I truly, in that moment, the reason, the reason I remember it so vividly was it was like a spiritual awakening. I truly believed that I was medicating myself. Like I truly believed that if I had all this stuff going on, that I had to do what I was doing because there was no other way that I could live in the world. How old were you at this point? I was 16. So you firmly believed that what you were doing was what you needed to do yeah. to get by. Yeah. That was the narrative you told yourself. Yeah. I don't even know if it was a conscious thought of like, well, you, it, was, it was just year upon year upon year of just this, I didn't know how else to live my life. And so I didn't. I saw all my peers going to, you know, starting year 11 and I saw them doing, I, th I thought it was so black and white to me, you know, I saw them doing this stuff and I was like, well, I don't belong there. I don't belong with these people. I don't belong with those people. And so the only place for me is this place. And it was that whole, if you had been through what I had been through, you would do this too. And so I didn't believe that I was making anything worse by doing this. I, be I believed in my whole, like my whole body, that I was the only way that I could live in this world was medicated in that way. Yeah, it made sense to you. And it was confounding to me that somebody would say that that was not the way. I think I went on for a couple more weeks before, you know, I called again and said, I can't, I can't keep this up. And I, I entered that rehab. I had another interview and I groveled. You knew what to say this time. <laughs> Well, yeah. Because you like, were I'm a not, smart girl, even then. I'm not stupid. Correct. I verbal people pretty well. Yep. Um, and, I, and I entered that rehab. They actually took me underage, which they technically shouldn't. shouldn't like. They normally only take 18 and over. And now having some some interaction with the, the mental health system, I know that 16 is actually a really hard age to get people help. Yeah, it is. So I was very lucky that they were willing to break the rules for me and um, and I went in there in September of 2005 and I came out November of 2005 and I spent 
those, I spent a few weeks coming out of psychosis and then I spent a few weeks learning about all the things that older people learn about when they're in rehab. <laughs> but the only thing that I can remember, because I didn't understand a word of it, is that they told me that I couldn't be friends with my friends anymore. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> there is no way. <laughs> so that was, that was really hard. And did you actually move into a space where you knew you had to let them go or you did retain them? So when I left rehab, I went back to my friends. Um, I started, you know, I was introduced to 12-step programs and I started to do, I had like my rehab buddy group and then I had like, I had my friends that I was raving with and I started raving sober before long, very quickly. You know, there's the whole, like, I had that one friend who was stoned down of his brain that was like, you can't do this. I was like, are you sure? You know, and that kind of, the, the wheels fell off very quickly. And I started using with somebody that I had met in 12 Step and she died um, while we were using together. Oh, sure. So that was, that was really hard. Like that was my first like OD that had, I'd OD'd a couple of times, but it was never, I'd never used with anybody that had used heroin and she OD'd and I was not unable to revive her. And so I ended up getting sent to a long-term. I went for, I went to a year long rehab for adolescence and, um, and I spent Monday to Friday there and had weekend leave. And at that time, um, I was using I was using on the weekends, but they were drug testing me on the Mondays. But what they were testing for was not what I was using, and so I was able to clever, stay. still clever. <laughs> um, but that's when my eating disorder really took off. It was like you know oh, just switching, okay. switching. Because I mean, I'd, I I had always had this undercurrent of an eating disorder, and when I stopped smoking ice, you know, the weight started coming on, mm. and so I was like, okay, well, how can I control this? You know, and so then I was in there. I wasn't necessarily using a super a super large amount, but I was ending up in a lot of food pain, and um, you know, I I ended up in hospital. Um, a couple of times with that and um and but that god that place that was incredible because I got some that connection I got the connection that I needed with peers like we had so much fun in there and I started to get that feeling that this could be okay so the belonging being felt somewhere else in it and obviously in a place that was going to be a much healthier fit for you longer term you know, we would all get on, we'd all go get our like medication at the end of the night and get on Seracol and stay up a little bit too late and all talk, you know, yeah. talk rubbish and jump from bed to bed. It was wonderful, you know, with people that were my age. Yeah. And, um, and so I got a glimpse of what it could look like if I was, if I was okay. But while I was in there, you know, the, the, the kind of the tightrope that I've been walking with those few previous years around like just like kind of mild, um, assaults that I hadn't quite identified as assaults yet unfortunately I fell off the other other side and I was assaulted quite quite violently um and so there was a bit of that now starting to you know feel the pain of the previous years and and that um the kind of the goggles had to come off because it was it was really painful and let it out process it mm, it was yeah how old were you at that point when when you actually About 17 yeah probably 17 okay so still really young in terms of being being able to go to rehab and whatever did that support actually come from family to help arrange yeah. it organize it yeah so my mum my stepmom was the one who organized the first one um and she organized it twice in the face of the ABO so like that was, um, you know, there was obviously logistics going on behind the scenes. I wasn't aware of them, uh, but now I think back to it and I'm like, that would have been quite difficult. And keeping in mind, like I had had a younger sibling born at this time. She was about six months old. So my stepmother, my poor, long-suffering, gorgeous, amazing stepmother, 
<laughs> um, but uh, the long-term one was uh, kind of just a series of like my parents had kind of realized that I was going through, going back through it and I couldn't go back to school um, and I couldn't hold down a job and I, I just, I was at home you know, I was just at home and it wasn't doing me any good. And so somebody mentioned offhandedly, again, with the system, you know, it's quite difficult, but I think the psychiatrist mentioned this place that I might be able to get into and that was then I got in. Um, and I think my parents might have walked in with like a checkbook and just said, how much do you need? <laughs> you know, please take her. Which is pretty amazing <laughs> given, yeah. you know, given what they'd been up against. That Actually, even though they'd taken that safety net away, they were always still there. Yeah. I guess, yeah, you know, hindsight, you can see that now, but it, it almost certainly didn't feel like it at the time, I'm sure. Well, it fit, it fit the victim, you know. It was really good for me because it was like my parents have given up on me. Well, I better keep putting this into my body you know like absolutely it, it fit really well um but it, now I can see how um my parents being the adults was really important for me really important okay so you needed those adults to stay in your life and be there that was f- fundamental for you to be able to get out the other side. Yeah, and I really needed I needed the adults to be adults, you know, because I felt so out of control. I see it with my kid now, you know, like their need for control undermines their sense of security, you know, and so I we end up in these power struggles where, totally. um, you know, I, I could relent, but that, that would undermine their need for security. And so I, th- I think one of the things that my parents have always been really good at is right now... I could walk into my parents' living room and kind of take my my stepmom hostage um, (laughs) and sit down with a cup of tea and just talk for two hours and tell her everything that's going on in my life and then I could leave. And, I mean, one would argue that maybe she's carrying a bit of my stuff for me. She's always been a parent. She's been the grown-up in the relationship with you. And even when we're adults, the grown-ups should still have the role of the grown-ups and you've got that, which is amazing. Yeah, and I'm very lucky for that. And my father, you know, he he has this ability to not take the things that I say personally. You know, I remember when I realised a couple of years ago that I had been carrying around this core belief that I was a bad kid, that I was hard and difficult and everything. And, and my therapist pointed it out to me and I was like, oh, my God, you know, I, I had created this narrative and I lived out the narrative. Right, because I think that's what something that can happen is that, like, if we tell a child that they don't, they're not a good sleeper, then they're like, "Well, I guess I'm not a good sleeper," you know. Internalize the message, and then it becomes the self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, exactly. And I think my dad and I were just having, and I said, "Oh, can I just run this thing that my therapist had said past you?" And he's like, "Yep, sure." And I said, "You know, um, she said that I have internalized a core belief that I was a bad kid." And I said, "But I, I wasn't a bad kid. I was just a kid." And he goes, "Yeah, of course you were." And he goes, but I can definitely see how you, I can definitely see where you've gotten that from, how our self-deprecating nature, you know, he, he just took it on. He didn't go, oh, well, we were doing the best that we can or, you know, like we gave you everything. It was, no defence. He just validated. Yeah, none. 
Yeah. And then um, we were at like a family gathering and my, my, my child was small, um, probably only about six months old and they were screaming and my grandmother said something like, oh, oh, you know, like pushing, pushing you a bit. And my dad was like, oh, we can't say that now. <laughs> <laughs> so not only did he own it, take it, not take it personally and then hold that space for me and verbalize that back to me and say, no, you were just doing the best that you could and so were we, but not in an aggressively Beautiful, way. just a factual way. He then way. tried to change his behaviour secondary to it. So I think that's something like the thing is is that I what I always get to with people whenever I'm talking to them about this stuff is, you know, you often hear this story about the heroin addict who had a terrible upbringing and no shoes and blah, blah, blah and all that stuff. That was not me. No. You know, I had parents who loved and adored me and really, really, like really did the best that they could and I think, everybody is and I run my life a lot better when I think that um but I went to a nice school I had nice shoes I had all the stuff and so for me I found finding myself as an addict was a bit of a shock because I was like hang on a second the math ain't mapping here you know <laughs> like, yeah this isn't what the drug education told me was gonna happen absolutely not that I could just yeah. make a few dumb choices and somehow get to this point which is essentially yeah. what happened to you you know I don't want to diminish the trauma that sat there you had some really big things happen for choices. you but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you know to get yeah. to 40 cones there's a lot of dumb choices in a day happening yeah. there you went into to like rehab, short-term rehab, long-term and intensive rehab. Obviously, there was a lot of therapy in all of that. Did you find therapy helpful? And if so, what part of it helped you the most? I know, yeah. I know. I think somebody holding space for me and giving me the sense that I was like important to them was really important. In terms of the style of therapy, CBT didn't work very well for me. When I discovered DBT, which was when I was about four years clean, I was like, why? <laughs> why have we not been doing this the whole time? What because is this revelation? My- yeah, it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty <laughs> amazing. Like, as I've said, you know, a lot of my problem was living inside of my head, yeah. you know, and so like talking to myself or trying to rationalise myself hadn't worked and it was making it worse (laughs) yeah so I had I've had a few counselors who uh stuck by me through some really gross and disgusting behavior in the therapy room or or that you're bringing into therapy if you like I think both like because at the long-term one I was seeing a daily so I mean that's it was a year so that's a big relationship actually yeah it was uh, unfortunately that relationship actually ended quite abruptly and badly which was not the not anybody's fault but of course I took that on as you know why I'm defective yeah no therapy definitely like I you know like you can hear like when I talk I'm very therapized <laughs> uh, there's no doubt about it you're making my job sitting here as a therapist and I'm not therapizing you but you are making it easy the, yeah, the lingo is there yeah yeah but I think a, a lot of what I find I do in like, cause I'll just be very clear about what I do. I'm not a licensed therapist. I have no, I'm not even adjacent. Um, uh, but what we have in 12 step fellowship is we have a sponsor, a sponsor, sponsee relationship. And so it, it's a, it's a matter of, of sharing experience, strength and hope. So it's, it's very boundary because I'm not a medical professional and it's not up to me to give somebody any advice that's medical but what I often find that I do that's kind of like adjacent to what somebody would get in therapy is they would get therapy for the big stuff and then what I do is I kind of um 
point out those maladaptive, just the little things, you know, and I do a lot of like the relationship conversations where I talk about like, well, that person, like you're taking that personally, that kind of like how to live in the world as an addict while still like um, not abandoning yourself, but kind of like giving up the self-obsession. So that's kind of what I do. So to answer your question, the therapy obviously has helped in a lot of ways, but I think that the um, the key factor in therapy is honesty. Agree. Which I didn't, I didn't know I didn't have any of because I was... I use the word manipulative, but I use it in a not malicious sense. It's kind of like what, oh God, I'm kind of getting off track here, but it kind of reminds me of like, you know how people say, oh, your baby's manipulating you. So to me, your baby can't, from a brain development standpoint, your baby can't manipulate you. They're just trying to get a need met. So that's their fundamental. Oh, I agree. It's a a coping skill and it is in in a lot of adolescent behaviours that play out, you know, addiction or otherwise, that outside of it, it can look incredibly manipulative. But I think if you scratch the surface and get underneath what's really going on. Just trying to get a need met. Absolutely right. Yeah. And it is a bit like that thing of like the attention seeking for the self-harm, you know, I like I internalize these like attention seeking, manipulative, selfish, all that stuff is morally bad when actually like I'm finding as an adult that sometimes selfishness is actually a really good attribute. (laughs) Sometimes I need it. A lot of people come (laughs) to therapy to find out how to be a bit more selfish, let me tell you. Yeah. 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 So it's like that, um, trying to find that, you know, we talk about in our, in our, program you know defects of character and and those defects of character not being defects they're misapplied assets so my perfectionism my self-righteousness my self-seeking behaviors are there to they were there to protect me for a long time i don't need them anymore not serving you so well now so you can let go reapplied brilliant brilliant reapplied yeah yeah so i don't know if that answers your question but that's where i went with that (laughs) it absolutely does and i think i think the bit that's really important there was when you said, you know, you're not a therapist and you're not qualified, but you, you do what you do. And I go, yeah, but you've got that key ingredient, which is actually what underpins all therapy anyway, which mm. is I'm going to be with you in a non-judgmental way. And if you work mm. with me, we will develop an alliance. And it is that mm. connection fundamentally. It doesn't matter what modality in, you know, the research is pretty pretty clear on that that you know yeah although i agree with you dbt is pretty good but it, it is yeah, yeah. actually it's DBT that person good, feeling yeah. that that person sitting opposite you has got you that you're understood you're validated you're not judged and that they'll be there and that's what you now provide for others which is really interesting that you've come that kind of full 180 full circle and i think i, I think there is that element of like oh no oh i think i, I think i touched on it before a lot of like my eating disorder, like, I mean, we haven't even, we haven't really talked no. about that, but um, I, I essentially it's the same thing. You know, it's a food addiction. You can't stop thinking about food in whatever form, whether you're eating it or not eating it, you can't stop thinking about it. But a lot of what I, what I say to my girls is like, when I was going through therapy for all of those years and when I was going through programs and this, that, and the other, a lot of what I internalized rightly or wrong, that I was the problem. You know, I needed to change it. I needed to fix it. I was the one that was in therapy. I was the one that was having to do all the work and stuff. And and a lot, particularly with the eating disorder, a lot of what I've actually had to do is externalize that for people is to go, actually, the media did this to you or the, the diet culture did this to you or this kind of stuff. And it's the same with addiction. You know, like 
we have a world that doesn't mesh well with our dopamines. We have a world that doesn't mesh well with our brain chemistry and we do whatever we can to get through that. Um, some people have more adaptive circumstances, whether it's genetic or whatever, but you know, I just survived as well as I could and I and I survived long enough to get some space to be able to get better. And I'm one of the lucky ones, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's still it was still me. Like I had to externalize a lot of that stuff. It's an incredible story, Sha. Like it's you know, you must even have impressed yourself at this point of how far you've come and and who you are today. Mm. Mm. Even though I'm sure that the battles remain and you're constantly challenged and, and having to do battle with, with some of that internal self-talk, but if you today could speak to 16-year-old you, and let's make an assumption because we both know 16-year-old you at the time wouldn't have listened, but let's make an assumption no, yeah, that yeah. this time 16-year-old you might hear, what would you tell her? You're not wrong or bad. You're just doing the best you can and that's okay, you know. And, the, and even though you've been told that the best you can do is better than this, you're still doing the best that you can. Yeah. I wish you could have spoken that to 16-year-old you. <laughs> I know. I kind of had this moment where I was like, oh, gosh, I hope I have the space as a parent to be able to do that when, when my child is 16. Like, because I know there's just so much, like I think, there's so much involved in being a human being as, an, as a parent as well as being a human being as a child. And, you know, a lot of my stuff was just a series of unfortunate events that could not be controlled by anybody, you know. And I just hope that I can put my pride aside when my child is older and be able to go, I love you, but I'm going to protect me, but I know that you're doing the best you can if if something like that was going to happen, you know. You'll be a really understanding mum of adolescence purely because of your own purely because of your own journey. One would hope. I might actually be more impatient than most because I'll just be like, snap out of it. Don't do that. Trust I me, did. don't do that. I did snap out of it, you know. Like I, I might actually No, oh instinctively God, you'll say it once, but you'll you'll know as soon as the words slip out of your mouth that they're they're probably not helpful. <laughs> Gosh, you've got to take away, but you're going to take back so much stuff. Say, I'm sorry, so many times as a parent. I never realized how much, how much I'd be apologizing for. <laughs> I know. And I, you, do you know what? I think the parenting job, well, number one, I've got, I've got a very, you know, I see a lot of adolescents. So I've got a very strong view around the fact that they, the world that they inhabit is really difficult and really challenging. But I'd also argue their parents are trying to parent them in a time that, that they don't have a lot of understanding about. Oh, totally. And, and that's a really totally. scary place to be because parents are scared and I would argue mm. that the adolescents can sense that fear, that mum and dad Absolutely. don't understand, they don't know what's going on. And when kids say that parents don't know what's going on, a lot of the time I would agree with them, the parents don't know what's going on. Mm. It's really mm. tough. But you're going to have an insight just from those years that will mean you sure as hell know mm. what's going on. So instinctively you'll be. My parents, I remember when they found out that I was smoking ice, uh, they got told by somebody, like one of my friends, dogged me in. And I remember them saying, oh, thank God she's not doing heroin. And, and I mean, this is like everybody knows now that ice is like, <laughs> you know, terrifying. But as you said, like, we don't understand it. So at that time, it wasn't mainstream yet. Right. So they were just like, oh, thank God it's not heroin. And it's like, and then it turns around and it's like worse and than heroin. Yeah. 
and you know so and I mean they were doing a wonderful and the best job that they could do as well you know like everybody's just I think that's that what I'm trying to build into my kid is just like everybody's doing the best that uh, they can. I agree. I agree. And for some people, <laughs> yeah. literally just putting one foot in front of the other, you know, if that's the best they can do right now, that's enough. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I could, I could talk, no I could talk for hours more, but I know that you're a busy lady <laughs> I, and I must let you go. But thank you for being so generous and so open and willing to share it. And, and hopefully other people will hear it and go, you know what? Actually, I do have agency and I do have choices and maybe I need to look inside myself first and yeah. and work out what it is I'm prepared to do where where my willingness sits I think you're I think you're incredibly inspirational thank you if you want the second half of the story you can, we can do Sha, that if you're part telling part. me that we can do a part b you're on <laughs> we, well we only got to say I know I know can, can we I'm gonna flag that can we possibly at some point move on to 17 and beyond i really enjoyed this. thank you yeah, so really much really i have this. too i've thoroughly enjoyed it thank you i really appreciate your time and we are definitely going to no talk worries. again thank you for listening to mind rewind subscribe for free for future episodes and if you're interested in sharing your own journey please contact us at beanstalkconsulting.com.au If you or someone you know needs crisis support, please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14.